I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct, but most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. KFI AM640. You're listening to the John and Ken Show on demand on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to the John and Ken Show. Uh, we have another one of these reports out. The Associated Press has done a long story about fraud and, in particular, a pandemic uh, relief money that started in 2020 under President Trump and continued into uh, Joe Biden's administration. This new number, we're going to get into the details of it because. The headlines are talking about more than $200 billion from two major pandemic relief programs. My guest is Bob Westbrooks, a former executive director of the Federal Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. It's a watchdog group. And he also has a new book, Left Holding the Bag, a watchdog's account of how Washington fumbled its COVID test. Bob Westbrooks, welcome to the John and Ken Show. Hey, Ken. Thank you for having me on. Now, now, let's start with this, because it looks it's confusing to me. There were there were so many programs, especially when it came to covid relief, that can we really get a handle on the number? And what is what is this more than 200 billion represent in fraud? Well, yeah, there were a lot of programs. There were about 420 different federal programs that distributed pandemic uh, aid. So the report that was out today is from the Small Business Administration Office of Inspector General. Um, they had oversight over one of the largest portfolios in the federal government. Um, the, a lot of people know about the Paycheck Protection Program. And then there was a, a parallel program called the Economic Injury Disaster Loan. It was disaster loans for folks. And the report out today is just their latest estimate where the inspector general is estimating that um, $200 billion from those programs uh, were lost to, uh, to, to fraud. That does not include uh, a sig- probably hundreds of billions in the 
federal uh, and state unemployment insurance programs that have been reported about um, multiple times uh, in all states. And I know California in particular got hit pretty hard. How do they uh, come up with these with these estimates? I mean, they've got to be pretty broad. And what percentage of the total money spent are we talking about here? Yeah, that's a great question. It is very difficult to get these uh, these estimates. And we're going to be at the, uh, the Inspector General Watchdog Community is going to be at it a long time. Right. To have a real precise answer, you really need to have pro- criminal prosecutions or audits. And there's millions of loans that went out. So it literally would be impossible to have audits and investigations on all of those. So you're going to see that number getting larger and larger over time as more investigations are completed and more audits are completed. Um, the estimation on the small business program is about um, 17% overall, but it's um, of one of those programs, the disaster loan program I mentioned, it's about 33% is what their, the IG is estimating was lost uh, to, uh, to fraud. When you hear that, Bob, you think that there was really no safeguards at all. I mean, that's a really high percentage of fraud, isn't it? It's a, a, a unacceptably high percentage of fraud. A lot of that was in the early days, and, and what I detail in the book was just how hectic and chaotic the first few weeks and first few months were. But as time went on, agencies, federal agencies, unless they were pushed by their watchdog, I didn't see a lot of evidence of them tightening controls, and that's really what as taxpayers we shouldn't have expected, as agencies tightening controls when fraud was identified. The watchdogs were reporting fraud vulnerability early and often, like from the very beginning, like as in a week after the, the CARES Act was the big piece of legislation that uh, uh, that was spent pandemic money. That was in March of uh, 2020. Within a week, there were oversight reports out warning the American people in Congress that, hey, unless we tighten up controls, we're going to lose a lot of money to fraud. And in fact, we did. Was it a lot of foreign operators? I mean, a lot of organized theft behind this who were just waiting for a chance like this? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what I've seen um, throughout my time, and I was there from the very beginning until the pandemic was winding down, you really had three groups of fraudsters. You had um, novice fraudsters that had never been in trouble before and never would have dreamed of committing fraud, but it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. And so you had people that uh, inexplicably just committed low-dollar fraud to, uh, to get money um, from various programs. We also had experienced fraudsters that, you know, these are folks that have done fraud in the past and it was an attractive, large uh, uh, attack surface for them. So they thought, okay, well, there's opportunities. Um, Let's take advantage of it. And then there were professional fraudsters um, overseas. There were transnational groups. Um, The Secret Service confirmed that um, there was actually fraud attributed to uh, uh, a, a group that's associated with the Chinese military. It's called Advanced Persistent Threat, APT-41. Mm-hmm. And that's a group that are professional hackers that um, some members of the group are actually charged with uh, the Equifax breach that happened, I think, 2017. I think it was 145 million Americans' personal information was stolen. And that stolen information ended up on the dark web, and it was monetized, and you had people from all over the globe who could buy your identity and my identity for the price of a Chipotle burrito. Um, they could buy all of your personal information, file a claim from anywhere in the globe on some of these programs. And in fact, they did. Then we saw organized groups and individual actors um, took advantage of our programs. Yeah, I mean, part of the title of your book is how Washington fumbled its COVID test. We know here in California, 
when the pandemic hit, I'm just talking now about our unemployment fund, it got ripped off for north of $30 billion because they basically suspended a lot of the controls and background checks because they thought people were desperate to get money. But this went on for far too long and it made it far too easy. I mean, you probably know, Bob, in California, prisoners were, were, were filing claims. Yeah. I, uh, can I, I detail a story in the book? This was uh, not in California, but it was in, uh, in Massachusetts. Somebody who had just gotten released from federal prison for aggravated identity theft got a job right away with the state unemployment insurance agency. Her husband was actually serving time during this moment in history um, for aggravated identity theft. And he filed an unemployment insurance claims with the state, which she is a contractor, uh, as a former uh, convict. She actually approved the claims uh, and they passed through. So it was, it was all over the country. Um, California was hit hard, but it was, it was in every state. And of course there were so many stories of people who couldn't get any money. They couldn't either get the application through or were told that they didn't qualify or things like that. When you look at these fraud numbers, it's hard to believe how unbalanced this was. Yeah, that's another great point. And we, we examined that and, and drew some attention to it when I was uh, executive director of the PRAC. Exactly right. There were groups because the programs are set up on like a first come, first serve basis. So the, and the, the fraudsters that knew what they were doing hit it quick. People that were connected that knew how to play the game hit it quick. There were a lot of small business owners that didn't have an established relationship with their lender that were locked out of the, pro, the small business programs. On the unemployment insurance side, there's story after story of people whose identity was stolen, a, a, a claim was filed in their name, and they needed the money but couldn't get it because their account was locked and they were told that they had already filed a claim. And, and the, the unemployment insurance systems were absolutely overwhelmed with those cases where they're trying to adjudicate Again, and remember, we're we're in lockdown in, in 43 states in America, right? I mean, this was right. this was crisis time in the early months, so we're doing everything online and digitally, and, and people were locked out of uh, of getting benefits, both unemployment and and small business and other programs as well. That's one of the points I make in the book is that it hit all of our programs. It was these were the big three, but um, all of our programs were hit. And back to the fraudsters, how much of this might we recover? I mean, you have the dopey person that took their millions that they stole from one of the COVID relief programs and they started buying expensive cars and going on big trips, I guess, drawing attention to, to themselves. But really, when you see these stories, are they a drop in the bucket of the money that can be recovered and the arrests that have been made, or are they getting a lot of it back? It's hard to say. I mean, the definition of a lot is a tough one, but I will say one thing that is probably the, the best win for federal law enforcement that I can remember in a long time on the financial fraud area. The Secret Service, working with the inspector generals, recovered $30 billion with a B. That's just unheard of. That's money that was obtained uh, through fraudulent means, that they were swift enough to identify the money sitting in banks before it was distributed, and they were able to grab that money and return it to the Treasury. So that is one huge win. And there are instances where the Secret Service and the, and the inspector generals recovered, um, you know, couple hundred million here or there on other programs. But yeah, you're right. For the most part, fraudsters that stole money, they steal money to spend money, our, our tax money, right? They don't, they don't steal it necessarily to invest it or whatever, although we did see some of that. 
Um, and you saw a lot, too, folks converting it into cryptocurrency, which made it tough for law enforcement. One of the big stories, um, I think one industry that seemed to have done pretty well was the luxury car market, because yes. in 2020, it seemed like every fraudster was taking their money to go buy a Lamborghini. We call them the Lamborghini cases. They would, like That would be the first thing they would do. So, you know, I, I often would say if I was still on the street working cases, I would have just hung out at the at the dealership and just and pulled one tags of people driving off the lot, you know, during a global pandemic dropping 200 K for a, for a brand new Lambo. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for talking to me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Ken. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's Be Bob well. Westbrooks, a former executive director of the federal pandemic response accountability committee. And uh, he's got a book that just came out left holding the bag, a watchdog's account of how Washington fumbled its COVID test as we are still three years plus later trying to add up how much was uh, stolen from federal and state governments and all the COVID aid money that was uh, put out there. John and Ken, KFI AM 640, live everywhere, the iHeartRadio app. You're listening to John and Ken On Demand from KFI AM 640. Steve Gregory is going to join me now to talk about this story, which... (laughs) California has about 90,000 police officers, but thousands could be decertified or suspended under a new state law, which might catch a lot of listeners by surprise, Steve, to find out what this is. Uh, So you're going to explain it more. Yeah, this was Senate Bill 2 is how it was presented back when the governor signed it into law in 2021. And this comes on the heels of all of the major push for police reform following the George Floyd incident of 2020. That's what I figured, right? Yeah. And so this was one of, uh, California is now one of many states that have adopted this sort of new rule that gives the Peace Officer Standards and Training Commissions of each of the states. That stands for POST. And they are the governing agency that certifies police officers or peace officers to do their job. Right. And this law now gives a panel within that organization the ability to decertify these officers for serious misconduct, things like rape and assault or killing someone on duty uh, if it was found to be out of policy, for instance. And then there'll be a process in which this panel can hear these cases. But the disturbing part of this, um, if it's founded, is that the Post Commission in California estimated in its budget that given the current state of complaints right now and the current state of misconduct complaints, that you could get up to $3,500, or excuse me, 3,500 officers per year could lose their certification in California. Well, all right, based on what you just said, I have two questions. The ones that you described, rape, murder, I mean, that should have already been a decertified police officer. Now, the additional ones you're talking about, well, what could rise to the level of the misconduct that could have them ousted? We're talking about too, using too much force or something? Yeah, or? egregious acts. And that's the thing that now supporters say this is going to be a great tool. Now, would you have to be convicted in a criminal case? No, or would it just not have necessarily. To be something, no. Somebody could file a complaint against you? Well, this? it would have to be a policy violation. And if it's egregious and if it's serious misconduct, doesn't yeah. necessarily say criminal conduct, just says serious misconduct. So you might be suspended for it, but not necessarily removed suspended. from the force. And now they could go look at that and say, now we want to remove you. Right. You could be suspended and or eventually decertified and if you're decertified you're no longer a cop but what they want to do beyond that is to make sure you're never hired again as a cop in california and never hired as a cop anywhere in the united states 
So are the police departments and the ones that you talk to, especially L.A. and such, they're aware that this might be coming? Do they know what police officers could be on the line here? Oh, yeah, they know. And right now there's a list already of officers uh, that uh, there's a decertification list that includes uh, departments in Redwood City, Sonoma County, San Francisco, San Diego, Kern, and San Bernardino counties. And these police officers, they're deemed to be dangerous. That would be the decision of this uh, this. Uh Committee, whatever it's called. Well, dangerous, but more, but I think, I, I don't know, dangerous, but misconduct. So if it was excessive use of force, um, if it was assault, if it was perjury, there could even be perjury, any kind of a misconduct that's deemed serious. And this is the thing that a lot of people are concerned about, uh, you know, the police unions and pro-police types. And they say this is nothing more than another anti-cop witch hunt because some of the people on this panel include anti-cop activists. Yeah, and I think they're going to be looking for any reason to downsize police departments would be my guess here. Yeah. And uh, the level of uh, the conduct may not really rise to what your average person thinks is enough to remove a police officer. And there could be questions maybe about whether or not it was the use of too much force. Uh, you know, we've had so many activists who have been on this defund the police movement now for three years that this could get out of control and removing officers isn't that the concern yeah and and up through the up through the five months of this year the first five months of this year there were 6200 reports of serious misconduct from law enforcement agencies now about 40 percent of those involve some sort of uh excessive use of force for instance now given the current and this is what the post committee post commission determined based on the current set of complaints before them that they could see easily up to 3,500 officers losing their certification annually uh, when this thing is really in full force. It went into effect January 1st of this year, and this is kind of the first we're hearing about any kind of impact on it because the commission had to do a study and they had to look at the budget and they had to look at what was going to happen and what the average complaint is. And this report that came out last week sort of determined that, yeah, we could lose thousands of officers every year under this new law. So is this going to come all at once, or are they just going to start uh, making their decisions and it's going to come out periodically who's going to be decertified as a police officer? And that's what they're working on now, Ken. They're they're actually creating that sort of model on how to do it, and I know other states in the country are doing something similar. So I would imagine, like they do most any new policy or procedure that they have to implement, they're going to seek guidance from other places that are already doing it, or they'll just put, uh, you know, they usually put some sort of a commission or committee together to create the policy and procedure, because this is unprecedented. We've never really had anything like this before. Now, post, in the past, they could decertify somebody, but it had to rise to a, a very extremely egregious level. But now we're talking about uh, presumably even minor offenses that are deemed serious. Uh, and this is, I think, the concern is that there's a lot of gray area here. Well, you and I, we've talked about this before, that police officers actually have a lot of protections. That, that a lot of information concerning their behavior is, is considered, what, private information? We can't often get a hold of it. A lot of it is, is under, they're protected under the Peace Officer Bill of Rights. And right. that's created for the reason to protect their identity, their family's identity, that kind of thing, uh, because of the threats against them. But there's also that movement, again, you know, post-2020, there was that big movement, police reform movement, to be more transparent. And some activists out there and some organizations, including the ACLU, they want every piece and detail of information about an officer and everything about them, even including medical. And seeing that's also protected. And as you can imagine, police unions are fighting and pushing back. Now, Governor Newsom has announced that he also wants to do sort of a trailer amendment to this Senate bill. 
in which the state does not give out information on officers because it's a cost-saving move. Uh, it's more for budgetary. He wants to put the onus back on the local police agencies to release information about their officers. And and then there are some groups now that are fighting that, saying that that's going to go back to being kind of a secret because if the local agencies don't want to release information, then they're going to have to take him to court to sue him under the Public Records Request Act. So, so how, are, how are police departments responding to this? Because they could lose thousands of officers around the state, huh? Well, there's not there's not much they can do. I mean, it's law, and unless you know, unless the uh, the California Police Chiefs Association or Sheriffs Association wants to battle it in court and go back and appeal it, that's certainly an option. But right now, they have to do much like they have to do with all of the new police reform bills that came out after 2020. They just have to learn to adjust. I mean, they really have to learn to figure it out. And then also, I think there's going to be a huge push to make sure that there's better training, better vetting of employees. Uh, there's rec recruitment at an all-time low. I was going to say, isn't recruitment a problem? Well, it's horrible. It's yeah. absolutely horrible. That's why you're seeing cash bonuses, rent relief. You're seeing all kinds of a, a, you know assistance because uh, 2020 was a really big pivotal point for law enforcement in general. All right, Steve, thank you very much you for that report. All right, Steve Gregory, KFI News, on this new law, which took effect thanks to 2020 and the whole uh, pushback against police after the death of George Floyd in California. It is possible that we may have 3,000 to 3,500 police officers around the state decertified or suspended based on this new state law and this commission on peace officer standards and training. It's got a commission that's going to look into this and make decisions on this. As usual, we cycle so badly uh, from the point where it looked like police were getting away with too much to the point now where it's decided police get away with too much and let's get rid of thousands of them. John and Ken show KFI AM 640. We're live everywhere. It's the iHeartRadio app. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the juicy. podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. 
Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to John and Ken On Demand from KFI AM 640. Well, we are going to talk now about uh, a website that came to our attention in an article in the California Globe about the fentanyl crisis in the state of California. FentanylSolution.org was mentioned in here. The president and CEO is Janice Celeste. And um, they're looking at uh, possible ballot measures to deal with this crisis because maybe the legislature is not doing anything the, uh, uh, to well, deal with this. The Senate Public Safety Committee refuses to consider any law, new law, that would go after fentanyl pushers, uh, the, the, the guys who kill your teenagers. They don't want to do anything about it. Just let these fentanyl pushers keep selling their product and killing your kids, and uh, that's the way it goes. Uh, so uh, let's get him on here. Okay, I'm here. Hi, She's been can you hear me? Yeah, hey. yes, we heard. <laughs> I heard you breathing heavy. <laughs> oh, so sorry. <laughs> oh, that, that's okay. That's Jan- okay. Somebody put you on a little early. Uh, Janice okay. Celeste is here, the president and CEO of FentanylSolution.org. Janice, thanks for coming on. What's this idea? What's what's this uh, referendum about? Well, you know, we work with a lot of parents who have lost their children, adult children and children under 18. And what we want to do is see them get justice. And you're absolutely right. In Sacramento, the Public Safety Committee is not letting any bills, any bills, even um, the most generous bills where you just get an admonition, like a warning if you get caught with fentanyl. If you you kill someone the next time you're, you're pushing, you... Just, you'll go to jail for murder. So the first time they get away with just selling and having the drugs on them. But the second time, if you kill someone and it's no excuse that you did not know there's there's fentanyl in these pills. So that bill can't even get through. Um, this week is going to be a really interesting week, though, because they are revisiting tomorrow and Thursday some of these bills. And we'll see if um, maybe the public pressure on the Public Safety Committee will get them to change their minds. But we're taking it to the people. If they do not do their jobs, we're taking it to the ballot. You know, we followed that story you're talking about, Janice, and uh, it was actually a a majority of state senators were supporting a a bill. It was sort of a bipartisan bill, but this public safety committee just bottled it up. Right. That was SB 44. It's a bipartisan bill. If it was taken to the floor of the Senate, it would have passed by now. It would have passed. They had 21 people agree on both sides of, of the table that this is necessary. But the Public Safety Committee won't let it get past committee. Yeah, well, you know, I'm suspicious because the Democratic leadership intentionally puts 
those characters on the Public Safety Committee. So it's a little suspicious to me that so many Democrats support tougher laws. But, ah, look at the bad luck. We've got the five five people who don't want any anti-fentanyl legislation. They just happen to be on the committee. Boy, oh, boy, how did that happen? Right, right. You know, and I'm really they're... cynical about it. I think they put those people yeah. on on purpose, and 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 everybody else says, "Oh no, I'm for it." I mean, it's the committee that's against it, but I'm for it. But they know the committee's never going to force them to vote on it. Well, hopefully, our ballot measure that they, now they know it's coming. Hopefully, that will give them some um, pressure from the public to do something because. The public's going to want this in the, in the majority. And, of course, you're going to have some people that are going to be against it. But we're, for the majority, it makes sense. If someone kills someone, they should go to jail. What, what specifically is in your proposition? Well, this is the thing. We have to do a poll first, and that's what we initiated. We already started the poll. Mm-hmm. We have the questions. Where our board will approve it on May 2nd, and then the poll will go out to 800 well, Californians. And the poll will, will write the legislation. And um, the purpose is to get stronger laws, longer penalties for drug dealers who kill with fentanyl. Uh, so it will be written accordingly to the poll, but that's the ultimate goal. Yeah, because we, what we heard from the Public Safety Committee, Janice, was that, oh, well, the war on drugs doesn't work and putting people in prison mm-hmm. just because they and they may not know that they're dealing uh, a drug with fentanyl in it because uh, sometimes they're just the middleman. We heard all these excuses. Yeah, well, uh, let me address that. First of all, the world has changed dramatically since the war on drugs. Just the Internet all by itself made this a whole different monster. I have a paper that's coming out. That says exactly that this is not the war on drugs, the fentanyl crisis. And in addition to that, um, you, you can't, you just can't, first of all, you just can't use that as an excuse anymore. You no, can't because I don't care if they know whether the fentanyl was in a specific pill or not. We know it's well, very they prevalent. They, we know, yeah, they may <laughs> yeah. know, and we know it's very prevalent. So if you're going around selling illegal pills to kids, uh, you, you should be, everybody, you know what? I would pass a resolution that says, here's the official warning. To all drug pushers, they're spent in a lot of pills. Now you know. Okay, you've been notified as of this moment. And, well, and- here's the thing. No one knows their industry better than they do. They can tell us about their industry. So for them to use that as an excuse is no excuse. Yeah. It's hard maybe to, to approve in court, but you shouldn't have to be proven at this point they poisoned someone. We didn't have um, these kind of numbers with the war on drugs. We didn't have um, overdoses happen like that. You still have crack users around from the war on drugs. We're not going to have any of these people around. None of the teens who are experimenting for the first time, so many have died with the first pill. The DEA has a whole slogan called One Pill Can Kill because it does. It, you know what's heartbreaking about it? It just seems to me, my opinion, looking at the, the kids who get caught up in this, that most of them are, are pretty decent, right? They're not, they're not troublemakers, but kids get curious. They're horribly influenced by social media, and they see somebody offering a, a, a cheap high on social media, so they try out a pill to see, to see if it's fun, right? They probably heard their friends doing it, and then they take the deadly one, and then that's it. And, right. and, well, and I, I don't know how anybody be, could be against stopping that. Well, let me give you a little more detail about that. So your kid gets on the social media platform. Usually Snapchat has been named as the um, biggest um, uh, social media platform that has been guilty of not doing much of anything to protect children that, you know, to get the drug. So they, they'll get 
involved with a drug dealer, they'll, then the drug dealer will follow them and groom them until they buy a pill. Then uh, they'll use Venmo, a cash app, or a parent's credit card, get the pill. Guess how it gets to your house? Through Uber Eats, Grubhub, those delivery what? services that usually deliver food. They don't know they're delivering it. They, yeah, they just know if they're taking a package from point A to point B. They don't know what's in it. They don't. And you can, your child can have a deadly, lethal drug in their hand in under an hour. Right. Wow. That's yeah. uh, it's pretty easy. I, I just And I just love how the executives that run Snapchat and all the rest of them they just have absolutely no conscience. They don't care how their system is being used and abused. It doesn't matter to them. No, they uh, claim that the child has privacy rights. Oh, yeah, geez. that's right. The right to uh, to die. Yeah. The right to exactly. take, a, take a bad pill and die. Well, and, and they have the nerve. They, they, well, real quick, they have the nerve to be uh, sponsoring the uh, fentanyl awareness campaign that's coming for Fentanyl Awareness Day on the 10th, but Snapchat, not doing much of anything. Snapchat, Snapchat. Is, is sponsoring the awareness campaign. Isn't that, isn't that nice? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, they're, they're psycho. Everything is manipulative and cynical and and they just everything's about fooling people everything exactly. is about public relations Aye. all right janice well keep us posted uh, as you move towards the ballot measures uh, especially what you find out with your polling and uh, we'd love I to sure talk will. to you again uh this is janice celeste president and ceo of fentanylsolution.org you can go there fentanylsolution.org to find out a lot more about what they're doing to affect some sort of approach to the fentanyl crisis especially here in California with the overdoses. There's some good charts there to show you just how much overdose deaths by fentanyl have grown in the state and the public, the safety committee and the state legislature doesn't want to do anything about this. They just put up a roadblock. Although we will be following the hearings that are coming up this week, dealing with a number of bills that they've agreed to hear in a special hearing. John and Ken, KFI AM 640. We're live everywhere, the iHeartRadio app. You're listening to John and Ken On Demand from KFI AM 640. Right now, we're going to talk about uh, maybe it's one of Deborah Mark's favorite clothing companies. I, I'm not sure. Lululemon. Yeah. It's not my <laughs> favorite, but I do I do have some of the workout pants. I like I like their leggings a lot. Weren't they one of the first with the yoga pants? And yeah. The, uh, those kind of... Uh, yeah, uh, it's an athletic brand. Yeah, uh, you and Eric Arcetti, both. Well, big. they are they're they're expensive, but they they fit well. Do we ever actually see Garcetti in yoga pants, or we just decided that they would work on him? I don't even know anymore. <laughs> it's been so long. <laughs> well, actually, I feel like maybe you said it because you saw a picture or you knew something, well, but I don't think so. Somebody here made a life size yeah, cardboard that, cutout they of him wearing Lululemon. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Photoshopping. I think I might have been taken from real life. Well, down he was, in Atlanta. He was, and he was topless, too. And, of course, shoplifting's a problem all around the country. Down in Atlanta, a couple of people went into a Lululemon and started taking stuff off the shelves and heading out the door. Well, two female workers decided to confront them, Jennifer Ferguson and Rachel Rogers. They were fired. Does that shock you? They have a policy at Lululemon. You do not confront and you do not challenge looters. Because it's just stuff. It's not. Yes, it's not safe. It could be. It could be very unsafe. But you got to feel sympathetic because we're all feeling this now. I don't think. I don't think they should. Watching be... people just walk out of stores with stuff and nobody does anything. So you got these two women trying to save some of the merchandise for their bosses. 
And just standing up for what's right, which nobody I think does. that's what it was. I think they're just like, this is enough. I'm going to try yeah. something here. And uh, apparently she well, just said, why don't you just turn around and walk out? And they ignored her. And then at another point, she said something like, uh, seriously, get out of the store. And the response was, chill, uh, B word, and shut your bleep up. And <laughs> says that the, the women walked outside and watched as the looters stowed away their stolen clothing and escaped in their car. They notified the police of the incident, but that they were fired because they interfered in some way. Lululemon they, should be proud of their yeah, employees that they that they were upset that somebody was stealing the merchandise. It's not like they own it. These are heroines. This this uh, weasel CEO Calvin McDonald. He does look tender, doesn't he? he? he <laughs> it's only merchandise, he said. We have a zero tolerance policy, and we train our educators. On around engaging during a theft. What the hell does that mean? We An train educator? our educator. You're selling, you're selling yoga pants. See, is that I, what they call people that work in a Lululemon store? Educators? We train our educators on around <laughs> engage. I mean, why do corporate people talk like such weasels? Nobody normal talks this way. Of course he'd have a stupid policy like this. And and turn turn the two women into the enemy. They're they're the ones who did something wrong, right? He doesn't say anything about the looters. He's upset about his employees that are trying to stop the robbery. Well, we train our educators on engage on not engaging during a threat. Yeah, that's where it's really upside down. The story's now focused on the two poor women that tried to stop these idiot shoplifters. And this guy says, well, you know, I'm going to stand by firing them because they violated company policy. What if everybody walking out the door with all your yoga pants? Well, you know, that's something for the police to handle. Well, obviously, the police are overwhelmed on this issue. Because yeah. shoplifting's not well, considered here's a his, big crime. Here's this. Uh, here's Calvin's uh, big idea. First of all, he says it's only merchandise. That's good to know. So I guess everybody ought to go into Lululemon and steal something. <laughs> that's right, because, because it's, it's only, only stuff. Right. It doesn't bother the CEO. He goes, it's only merchandise, and they're supposed to scan a QR code to alert management about what's happened. And that's that, he said. We've been told not to put it in any notes because that might scare other people. We're not supposed to call the police. We're not really supposed to talk about it. They're trained to step back, let the theft occur, know that there's technology and there's cameras, and we're working with law enforcement. Uh, yeah, women, that's been effective so far, hasn't it? I don't even understand. We're not told not to put it in any notes because that might scare other people. What does that even mean? I don't know what that means. He, he said they knowingly broke the rule, including following them out of the store. The policy is to protect them, but we have to stand behind the policy to enforce it. Jesus. Now, one oh. quick note. California State Senate just passed a bill that would prohibit companies from forcing their employees to confront shoplifters. I don't know that that's going on, but we're kind of going in the opposite direction. Nobody forces you. I don't think so. Oh, uh, maybe there is a couple of cases where there's some guy that lectures his workers. You better stop that shoplifter. But I don't know that there is. But What's that word you used to describe him? Educators. No, no, no. Calvin McDonald, the oh. CEO. Uh, tender. I don't, tender. Yeah, I think it was tender, yeah. Yeah, I guess a good word. <laughs> okay, we're going to... I just took a look at him. <laughs> we're going to talk to Blake Trolley when we come back. He's not going to uh, stop a robbery, I'll tell you that. No, that's not going to happen. About a new cleanup going on of the homeless in Venice. John and Ken, KFI AM 640, live everywhere, iHeartRadio app. Hey, you've been listening to the John and Ken Show. You can always hear us live on KFI AM 640, 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. every Monday through Friday, and, of course, anytime on demand on the iHeartRadio app.
I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people... It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct. But most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 